All right, we invite you to turn in your Bibles today to Genesis chapter 8 for our scripture. We'll be beginning in verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, Everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I shall require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image." And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with them, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. 
I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You know, Isaiah says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. So for all the college football fans this morning, let me reframe that. (laughs) Tennessee football withers. FSU football fades, right? But the word of the Lord endures forever. You know, that that passage from, from Isaiah seriously is what we strive to hold up here at Four Oaks if you're new. One of the things that you need to know about us as a church family is that we, we try to make the Word of God central to all of our gatherings. We believe that apart from the Bible, you can't properly worship God. Apart from the Bible, you can't know Jesus. Apart from the Bible, it's impossible to have a true, authentic, living relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we, we want to spotlight the Word as a part of all of our gatherings, we certainly do that on Sunday mornings. Uh, we preach through books of the Bible. We're obviously in the middle of a series on Genesis. But we also do it through things like community groups, our children's ministry, student ministries, and our adult Bible studies. And just real quickly before we dive into the Word, um, most of our men's and women's studies are kicking off this season. And, and particularly, I want to um, encourage the ladies to, to check out what's happening this season um, we have a number of women's studies kicking off over the next week. Wednesday mornings is a big time. We provide free child care. But particularly, um, ladies, if, if, if a number of you do work outside the home, there's a couple of, of good opportunities for you as well. One is on Wednesday night. Another is for an early, early, early uh, Bible study on, on Tuesday morning. And 15 brave souls have already signed up for that. So encourage you ladies towards that. Dudes as well with the men's studies. But y'all can find all that on Four Oaks Killarn. But for this morning, we're in Genesis 8 and 9. And let me tell you where we are going. We are here post-flood. The waters are receding. The mountains are appearing. It is a new start seemingly for humanity. And what we want to gather from this passage is what does God want us to know about him and how we are relate to him? And what does God want us to know about one another and how we relate to one another? And as we're going to see in this passage, these are things that apply right up to the present day. Things that we need to know to fruitfully, effectively, faithfully minister and live in a fallen world. And so our two points this morning is God remembers and God renews. That's where we're heading. Now, everyone who has traveled at all undoubtedly has an airport horror story, right? 
you were stranded on the tarmac, we know, for three weeks, and you know, you were fly, spent the night in the airport and all those things. But recently, my friend Dave Harvey, who's your friend as well, used to be on the pastoral team here. He's now in, in South Florida ministering there, um, told me this story. I don't think Dave would mind me telling this story, but even if he does, it's too late. Okay, so, so David had been ministering all weekend in, in Southern California a number of months back, and was exhausted and showed up at LAX on late Sunday night to catch the red eye back to South Florida, the 12.30 a.m. flight, looked on his ticket, and there it is. It's the flight, and it's the right time, and there's his seat, 25B. So Dave goes onto the airplane and is looking around for his, for his seat, and he sees you know, there's 25C and D, and the place where there's supposed to be 25A and B, there's only 25A. There's no 25B. And the stewardess come, flight attendants, everybody's like, they can't, they're confused. They don't know what's happening. There's a missing seat. But the problem is that this plane is packed full. It's the last flight of the night. So they had no option but to summarily dismiss Dave to wander around at LAX all night. Dave said he felt like Tom Hanks in the terminal, right? He was like living perpetually in the airport. What no one knew and what Dave discovered later many hours later, was that he had actually shown up 24 hours early for that flight. All right. I just love that. Something in my heart just so much appreciates that. You know, one of the underappreciated parts of this flood story is, in fact, the travel, right, is the, is, is the waiting. Look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 8 for a second. And again, these verses have all the earmarks of someone who's writing in their diary saying, I remember the time and the place where I was, Noah says, when the waters finally receded. He says, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. Now, when you total up the total number of of days that Noah and his crew and these animals spent in the ark, it is probably well over a year. And as thankful as I'm sure Noah was for this grace in his life and being preserved from this treacherous, wrathful flood, let's be honest, this was no Disney cruise, right? Remember what we said last week, this was a literal basket. It was a box. It was a container shaped like a coffin. You couldn't steer it. You couldn't hoist a sail. You couldn't anchor it. It was, it was literally floating at the mercy of all the elements around it. And can you imagine what that would have been like for a year? The animal stench, the stale air. You know, last week we joked about how nauseous they undoubtedly were, but this is, this is true. In fact, when they interviewed men who were part of the Normandy invasion on D-Day, who came ashore on those landing crafts, to a man they would tell you, we know what was happening on the beach. We know all the men that were being killed. But as horrific as that was, it wasn't as horrific as us being in the boat, right? We just wanted to get out of that boat. We were so sick. See, things got old and fast for Noah as they were traveling in this floating circus, so to speak. And Moses, I want you to go back to chapter 8. I want you to, to, to think about the, the links that Noah goes to, I'm sorry, that Moses goes to, to paint this portrait of Noah. And this portrait that he paints of Noah is a man who is completely, faithfully, prayerfully 
dependent upon God. He is a waiting man. Look at all the meticulous detail that Noah goes through in this passage. He sends out a raven. He sends out the dove, not once, not twice, but three times. I don't know about you, but the the second time the dove came back with the olive branch, it would have been like, we are out of this thing, right? We are throwing the cover off. We We are making hay. We're finally here. But no, no. It says Noah waits a week, another week, extended time. In fact, it tells us in the passage that even when Noah knew that the earth's waters had receded, he didn't come off the ark until when God told him. We have to ask, how in the world was Noah's faith sustained during this time? I mean, he, I mean, granted, the ark was, was, was great. He was thankful for the ark. His family was, but, but over a year, and it tells us in the word, he doesn't hear from God the whole time. How was how Noah sustained? How, how are you and I sustained in our waiting? Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, but God remembered Noah. You see, everything in this story, I think, hinges on this verse. Let's remember now, chapter divisions. Verse divisions, these were not included as a part of the original writings. Moses didn't include these in here. They were added thousands of years later to give us reference points so that we can more easily navigate through Scripture. But go back to the end of chapter 7 for a second. And I want to read those last two verses in the first verse of chapter 8 just to give us the sense of contrast and flow of how significant verse 1 is. Chapter 7, verse 23, he, meaning God, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days, here it is, but God remembered Noah. You know, when we use the word remember, we use it to, to indicate like we're recalling something or maybe we have forgotten something, but now we, we remember it. Like, I'm just saying, like if you go to Circle K and you're going to spend $9 on a gallon of milk and you stand in line for 20 minutes only to get to the front of the line and be like, oh, I forgot my wallet. I'm just... He who has ears to hear, let him hear, right? We hate it when that happens. See, but that's not the sense in which this text is being used as if, well, Noah was floating around and then God, like one day, was like, oh, I forgot about Noah. I remember him. He's, he's hanging out in the ark. That's, that's not what that means. In the Bible, this idea of remembering means to act upon a previous commitment. Remember when when. Abraham and Sarah could not have children because of their age, but God had promised them they would. And what does it say? It says, God remembered Sarah. God remembered Abraham. To remember means to act upon a previous commitment. Every time you see the word remembered in relationship to God, it means action. 
It means forward movement. It means sovereign initiative. So again, what sustains Noah in his waiting? It's God's word that sustains Noah. Think about how many times in that ark over a year where Noah was like, I don't know if we're going to make it. I don't, I, I'm despairing even of life. I don't know if I can take this anymore. He had to remember God's covenant with him. And what did, what did God say in his covenant to Noah? Noah, I'm going to spare you. Noah, I'm going to wipe off all life, humanity on the face of the earth except for you and your family members and a few fortunate animals and we're going to start all over again. See, waiting is hard, isn't it? See, when waiting can be difficult even when we know we're right in the middle of God's grace. Right even when we know we're right in the middle of God's will because when we wait there's such a temptation to take control, right? To take matters into our own hands, to speed things up, to saying, God, you're not moving this down the, the field as fast as I would like you to. Reminded of this as you were hearing the update on the Pifers that, that Pastor Rob was just giving. And I, and I encourage you to go to the Carrying Bridge website, by the way, for, to, to read about Jake and um, his struggles with epilepsy and the two weeks they spent in the hospital down in, in, in Shans. And, and Shannon Pfeiffer posted on, on the Carrying Bridge website many times. And one of the great themes that you read in there is that of waiting. You see, Jake had to be in a bed, strapped to a bed, electrodes into his brain, and he couldn't leave the bed. 10 days, 12 days, they finally let him get up and kind of mosey around a little bit. There was a lot of discouragement, a lot of despair. Rob and Shannon and Jake, they knew they were right where God wanted them. They knew this was God's grace to them. But they began to ask, how much longer are we going to have to do this? And listen to this journal submission from the Caring Bridge website that Shannon wrote. It's outstanding. It says, God opened the door for some good conversations with Jake, where we helped him set a course for the rest of his stay there. Now listen to this. We felt a shift in his heart today, a determination to bear with this and submit to this process. That submission is really to God and his plan for Jake and all of this, which we know we can trust. Many of you this morning have come in here and you find yourself in a posture of waiting, don't you? You've been praying for a non-Christian friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, a family member for years, maybe decades. Some of you have been praying for the heart of your spouse or the heart of your child. Some of you are like, I know that God has given me this job, but if I have to get up one more morning and go to work at this place with this boss, stick a sharp object in my eye, right? So some of you are like that. I, I don't know what posture of waiting that God has you in or what sphere or what arena. I just know that all of us live there. All of us live there. And what God wants us to know today, to be reminded of today, is that he remembers 
Not like, oh, oh, yeah, I, I remember. No, 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 no. If you were in Jesus Christ, he has made a covenant with you to seek out your best, to work all things together for good, to to care for you, to walk with you, to provide for you. But here is something that I, 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 I saw in this passage. I think it's, it just sort of hit me upside the head, and this is something we need to, need to come to understand, that it's not as if we are waiting for the grace of God, although we are. But do you know that the waiting is actually a part of God's grace? Have you thought about that? That we think about the grace as like the end, the fulfillment, the culmination. But in actuality, the waiting is actually part of God's grace. You see, oftentimes when things are going hunky-dory, we're good, right? We're free, we're clear, we live self-sufficient lives, independent lives. Very easy to, to sort of experientially forget God. But what happens when we have to wait? What happens when we know there is a need? You and I go to our knees, don't we? There's dependence. There's prayer. We gather our brothers and sisters in Christ around us to walk with us. See, wherever God has you waiting in this season of your life, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's part of his grace. Because he wants to mold you, to conform you, to transform you to draw you into closer dependence upon him. And so it was with Noah, so it is with us. God remembers Noah. If you know Jesus, God remembers you right where you are. Number two, God also renews. Now, we have to think about what this was like for Noah and his family to get off this ark. Because as soon as they get off the ark, you can see here in the text, God gives them a series of commands, a series of imperatives. He tells them to be fruitful, to multiply. He tells them to spread out, to take dominion. You can imagine what this is like. The earth is cleared of all the riffraff, right? In Noah's eyes. All those people who are making fun of him and taunting him for 120 years. And, you know, you, you, you just get the sense of like, man, this is, this is a new start. The earth has been cleansed. It's a new day. Now, no, up to this point, what does this sound an awful lot like? This whole idea of take dominion and spread and multiply and be fruitful. It sounds just like Genesis 1 and 2, right? This is exactly what God had told Adam. But now Noah is here. He's the second Adam, right? He is the one that gets a second shot. Except there's one thing that's fundamentally different about Genesis 9 than Genesis 1 and 2, and it's found in verse 21. The thing that is fundamentally different is that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In your version of the Bible, it might say the The intention of man's heart is evil continually. In other words, you don't have to remind yourself to do bad stuff. It just comes naturally. You don't have to teach a child to do bad things. It just comes instinctively. See, and and what, what Moses is signaling to us here is that while the flood may have eradicated people off the face of the earth, it may have cleansed the earth in a sense, 
The one thing the flood could not do was change hearts. It was a new earth, but it was still the same old sin. So God had to do something with Noah and mankind that he had not had to do with Adam and Eve when he created them. God had to reconstitute his relationship to mankind. He had to, in a sense, give them a new set of rules. He had to give them some new operating procedures. And so he says here that he makes a covenant with Noah. Now, the word covenant is not super familiar to us. The word covenant, we might hear it in a marriage ceremony. You might see it in those HOA documents that you had to sign, which said that you, weren't, you were going to do X, Y, and Z to keep your house up, and you weren't going to park your car in your front yard, you know, all that sort of stuff, and to the little old lady in the HOA tattles on you, to the home association. You know, we, we see covenant in that kind of context. But covenant is actually a massive theme of Scripture. I would argue it's the, it is the unifying theme of Scripture. And covenant, in a sense, is like a treaty. It's a life and death bond. And a treaty was modeled after the ancient Near East treaties where there was a king, what we call a suzerain, suzerain king, and a vassal or his subjects. And in this covenant, both parties would come together and they would each agree to do certain things for the other. And so the king said... If you're my subjects, what I, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you land to work and to plow. I have, an, I, have, I've, I have benevolence that I'm going to pour out on you. I'm going to give you this haven, this protection. And in return, here's what I want from you. I want your taxes. Or if there's an invading army, I want you to be a part of, part of my army. And, and there was sort of mutual obligations. And so we see covenants all over the Bible, right? So we see the covenant with Abraham. We see the covenant with Moses and the people. We see the covenant with David. Of course, we're going to talk about this in a minute. We see the new covenant in Jesus Christ. But here is something that distinguishes God's covenant with Noah that's different than all other covenants in the Bible. And here it is. See, with all other covenants in the Bible, the covenant that God makes is between himself and his people, himself and his chosen, his, himself and his family. But here, God makes a covenant not just with his people. God makes a covenant with the whole world. God makes a covenant with all of mankind forever and ever until he returns again. And here's kind of the stipulations of the covenant. Look back at the text. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to destroy the earth again by water. In fact, we know the earth will never be destroyed again until the end of the age by fire, Peter tells us. But God says, I'm not going to destroy the earth by water again. In fact, I'm going to give you air to breathe. I'm going to give you a place to lay your head. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you this earth and everything that's in it. I'm going to even give you, and this is interesting, this is not just Christians, also non-Christians. I'm going to give you the capacity to, in a sense, flourish even in a fallen world. That's what I am going to do for you. Because, as we'll see, God says, what I'm really after is your heart. I'm really after your worship. I'm really after your faith. 
What does the psalmist tell us? It's the kindness of the Lord, Romans, I'm sorry, that leads us to repentance, right? So God says, I'm going to stay my hand. I'm not going to bring utter destruction in judgment. And in return, I'm going to give you some order, some structure, some outlines, things that will help you flourish, things related to other people and to animals and to life. And, and as we walk through some of these things, I want you to think about them, church, on, on two levels. Number one, these three areas that God highlights for Noah are still operative. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter about culture, ethnicity. These are things that God gives us as a human race in order to better order our lives. But the second thing I want you to think about as we walk through those is to what are these things pointing to? So, so three areas, and get your steel-toed boots on, right? Because Genesis goes right there. There's three areas. The first one is life and death. It seems that God makes provision for capital punishment, life for life, tooth for tooth. Now, we may ask, why is that? And there's a couple of reasons. One, homicide is the worst of all crimes. And the reason it's the worst of all crimes, look at verse 5, chapter 9, is that they are against our fellow man. Now, do you know that the term literally in the Hebrew is fellow brother? See, we are all, all of humanity is a part of the family of God. We are descended from a common ancestry made in God's image. And when we take someone's life, what Noah seems, Moses seems to be saying here is that this is actually an assault on God himself, which is what makes it so serious and to let it go unpunished or to, or to not punish it in the most severe way, now listen, dishonors God. It dishonors his image. Now let me tell you what I think this means and doesn't mean for today. This doesn't mean that all systems of capital punishment are just. They are not. Some are inequitable. Some are unjust. Some in dictatorial regimes that target people based upon race or ethnicity or religious affiliation, those are, those are all abominations. However, I think the text teaches us that you can't oppose capital punishment based upon principle alone because God gives us the principle Man made in my image requires life. Now, one of the things just to, to, to toss out there is oftentimes it's told that for those of us, and I hope this is all of us, who advocate for the life of the unborn, who advocate for pro-life sorts of issues, that in order to be consistent with those arguments, we have to also advocate against the death penalty, no other way to say it except not true. Not true biblically. Abortion takes innocent life. Capital punishment takes typically a guilty one. 
So I don't think you can advocate for a position against capital punishment based upon principle alone. The whole, the whole deal here is God is saying life is precious in all of its forms. And to take life dis, innocently dishonors me because it dishonors my image. A second area that Moses highlights for us in this Noahic covenant is the area of children and family. Notice back in the text, it says, be fruitful and multiply. It is an expectation that within the context of marriage, there is going to be children, procreation. We have to ask why. Well, the reason why is that if there are eight people made in the image of God, how much better than eight billion people in God's image? See, there is this sense in which as people populate, this is how a knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth just as the waters cover the sea. This is what honors God. This is what, as, as more people are raised up to pass the knowledge of God to the next generation, God is known and man will flourish. That's why we have to say as a church family, if we have not honored this idea of passing the gospel torch, if we wake up 20 years from now and we're an old dying church, then in many ways we could say we have failed the mission. Now, I understand before I say this next thing, there's a lot of people here who wish they were married and aren't, wish they had kids and aren't. And so what I'm saying here is more based upon principle. But research is showing that in the West, North America, Western Europe particularly, birth rates are on a massive decline. Massive decline. It's a societal trend where children, let's be honest, are seen as interruptions. They're seen as obstacles. They're seen as deterrent to the good life. And so if it means aborting them so that we can fulfill our dreams, or if it means unnecessarily delaying having kids because there's things that we want to do, then we have misunderstood what it means to flourish as human beings. We have misunderstood what it means to flourish as the people of God. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And when they are aborted or neglected, that is not a blessing on society. That is a curse on society. Guys, there's 10,000 applications and, and moderations I could apply to what I've just said. There's not time. Apply these truths in the context of your own life. Now, a parallel development with declining birth rates, and isn't this interesting? This is the third area, impacts man's relationship with food and animals. Isn't that interesting? Pets, animals are prioritized in our culture, oftentimes in ways that are disproportionate to children. Statistics show again and again in major cities, there are many, many, many more pets, dogs than there are kids. And that deserves a little chuckle, and we can make little jokes in here and there. But we need to take very seriously the proper ordering of the covenant given to man as it relates to man and animal. Man and animal are not co-equals. We are not positioned in the same place on the circle of life. Sorry, Elton John, right? We're, we're not. 
Man is given a priority, a stewardship, a dominion. Certainly, yes, there, there, there's, there's, there's cautions here about do everything in a way that honors God. There's not mistreatment or savagery. But in reality, that's a fundamental reprioritizing that the scripture calls us to. You always know a society is in decline when those things are reversed. When animals, plants, environment, all food, health, are all prioritized over children and people. Again, a thousand qualifications I could give you. And I'm sure there are tons of pastoral questions to work through. Go talk with them with one of us in your community group, one of your pastors or elders. But the principle is clear. Now, one little thing that's, that's interesting about this prohibition against shedding or eating the blood of animals, let me say, what does that mean? This goes back to the idea that blood, of course, is life. Blood represents life. And, and there's different theories about, well, there was pagan cultures who were drinking animal blood, and there was, this is about the mistreatment of animals. But most likely, what this is pointing to is this, that every time an animal was killed for sustenance, food, and the blood was drained from it, the person would be reminded of the importance of blood to their own life. Not just their physical life, not just your physical life, but our spiritual life. Look back at uh, verse 20 in chapter 8. It says, Noah brings a sacrifice to God. Now understand something. This is not the kind of sacrifice Cain and Abel brought. This is not a sacrifice of thanksgiving. This is not a sacrifice of peace. It's not a sacrifice of friendship. This is the same word for burnt offering that we find in Leviticus. The first time that we see this kind of offering in the Bible, it literally is an offering for atonement, for payment of sin. You see, Noah, in order for there to be a right relationship with God, blood must be offered up. See, without the, without the shedding of blood, Hebrews tells us, there is no sacrifice for sin. And here Noah stands as this mediator, this representative of all humanity between God and his creation, and he's offering up atonement. And God is saying, in, in exchange for this bloodshed, I will stay my hand. I will stay my hand. I will give you flourishing in this life. Guys, did you know every day that we are alive is a grace of God. Every breath we take is a grace of God. And God says, I'll even give you a sign in the sky just to remind you of my grace. But folks, here's the problem. Here's the problem. This covenant is not enough. It's not enough for you. It's not enough for me. It's not enough for your neighbor. It's enough for this life. But you and I have a soul that can never die. Everybody who's ever been born has a soul that can never die. Noah's covenant is incomplete because we are that humanity, right? We're the ones whose hearts are inclined to every sort of evil. We're the ones where 
sin comes naturally as part of our condition. We are that humanity, and our sin must be covered. See, we need a new covenant, don't we? As Jeremiah 31 says. We need God to write his name upon our hearts. We need God to do for us what the Noahic covenant can't do. As awesome as this world and this life could be for us and how much, however much we could flourish living according to these principles, it's not enough if we are not participating in the new covenant with Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ is the better mediator. Jesus Christ is the one. Now think about the significance of this. He comes to his disciples the night he was betrayed and he breaks bread and he takes wine. And what does he say? This is the new covenant in what? My blood. See, blood is the sign and the seal of the new covenant. And one thing that, that, that we have to remember when we come to the Lord's table every week, we're not just remembering the death of Jesus on our behalf, although we are doing that. But these are signs of the covenant God has made with us. And when we come to the table, this is not mere ceremony. We are breaking off a piece of the bread. We're taking juice and we are saying, God has made a covenant with me and I'm renewing my covenant with him today. Publicly, before his people, celebrating the fact that because he has cleansed me, purified me, he's making me new And now I'm worshiping him. Even as we wait, right? In hope. This was Noah. And as we're going to see next week, we find out Noah is not the, he's not the second Adam, is he? Noah fell spectacularly. Only to once again remind us that we have a better way a better mediator, a perfect mediator in Jesus Christ. Do you know this, Jesus? If you do, we're going to come and renew our covenant with him 